as I look back on my life, at that time, my friends changed. It, it might have happened anyway. My grades got a lot better. Might have happened anyway. I don't know. I assigned a lot of things to transcendental meditation that may not be causal. Okay, so um, today's guest on the podcast is my good friend, Artie Isaac. Artie um, sent over his bio and it reads, I'm going to actually read it, and this is a bit unorthodox. So is Artie. It says, skip a biographical statement. Artie prefers you to describe the following, how you met Artie, why you invited Artie to speak, and what about today's topic seems valuable for the audience. So I'm going to try to do that quickly. I met Artie. I don't even know. I think we met through mutual friends. I had an interest in transcendental meditation, which you'll hear us talk about on the show. And we connected over meditation. And why I invited Artie to speak is because I selfishly, as you'll hear, just love being around him. He's funny. He's smart. He's interesting. He's doing great work. He's creative. He's taught creativity. And I just um, think he's wonderful. And I think you will too. And today's topic um, that I think is most valuable is just um, how to kind of navigate living an authentic life and one that is full of laughter and fun and um, creativity. And um, I think that summarizes Artie. Um, he did actually send over a short biographical statement. So let me just read to give you a little bit of context. Artie has worked with highly creative people addressing challenges and opportunities facing more than 1,000 leaders and companies. Artie chairs CEO peer groups with Vistage Worldwide, the world's leading chief executive organization. He has taught personal creativity and innovation at the Ohio State University Fisher College of Business and marketing strategy, ethics, and creativity at the Columbus College of Art and Design. Artie received a BA in 1982 in English from Yale and an MBA in 98 from Columbia. Artie wrote Throw Me a Bone, Poetry for Dogs in 2019, and Pandemonia, Poems in Seclusion in 2020. Okay, we are here today with another episode of the Gravity Podcast with my friend Artie Isaac. Artie, it is great to see you and to have you on the show. Hi, Brett. Thank you. Looking forward to this. So let's start at the beginning in the life of Artie Isaac. Tell me a little bit about what life was like as a child, your kind of family dynamics, your upbringing, um, anything that feels like really important to share from your very early days. I was unexpected and I might not have been here uh, depending on uh, the availability of family planning options. My mother mentioned that on my first date with Elisa. For some reason, I brought Elisa home to meet the parents on our first date. This is, I know we're, we're going to go back to childhood, but my mother said, yeah, she had, she had thought of uh, other options. I was the fourth. And oh, final... It's worth mentioning that you ended up marrying Elisa and have been married for, I don't know how many decades. 33, yeah, or 33 years. Yeah. And so, um, that says a lot about her that she was able to overcome all of that. I don't know what her first, first dates. <laughs> I don't know what her first dates were were like with others, and so I can only I can only imagine. And when I was born, I was doted upon. They loved me. They, I was I uh, was the only boy. Uh, I have three older sisters. Had three older sisters. One is deceased. I uh, 
No, they showed me only love and uh, and adoration, and they were they were absolutely just you know. But there was like a couple of weirdnesses. Like there was this. Um, all my all all their friends had kids my sister's ages, so I was like the only kid among adults, and I was trained and encouraged early on to not so much be a kid, but to be a little adult. They really wanted me to develop the skills of adulthood, at least the social skills, really early. They invited me into conversations. They invited me. They took they took care to include me. I I look at my father, who's been. Uh, uh, he died uh, three decades ago. He was like a good friend, uh, more than sort of the father figure throwing the ball in the front yard. He was he was just a good guy to have around the house and and a delight with me. And um, and he taught me plenty, but um, more along the lines of uh, of, of writing and um, and comedy. Uh, my mother also taught me plenty. She was um, less contemplative than my father, but. They they both they they both were fine writers and they were, they were both really funny people and I I inherited uh, I inherited whatever humor I have uh, from from both of them. There was a weirdness in the family. I had that middle sister who is who is deceased now um, ran away from home. And I guess she was fifteen or something. I, I don't even know the details. I was little, and so th- and these things never got spoken about. And so there was this. There was this non-conversation in the house as well. There was this subjugation of emotion that I didn't know. And, and I don't hold anybody accountable. I mean, people were doing the best they could with what they had. We, were, we had affluence. My grandmother used to say uh, that during the Depression, it, it was too bad that they were poor, but thank God they always had cash. And I, and I, and I feel like there's a lot of that. There's the, there's the, the feeling of uh, maybe... Striving for more, but not to the point of it getting in the way of the enjoyment of life. My parents used to have, they had eight couples called the Saturday Night Group that met every Saturday night at nine o'clock for dinner and drinks, smoking. And they would laugh and talk and dance into into the wee hours every Saturday night for 25 years. Artie, tell me, you know, this kind of idea that your parents wanted you to socially be, you know, more of uh, an adult or kind of, you know, in the adult conversation. Did that shape you at all? I mean, tell me like, what, so then what were you like as a kid? Were you able to connect with other kids or were you better with adults or what, what happens early on? I'm definitely always better with adults. Uh, absolutely. I, th- I think what, uh, the effect it had on me was I did develop certain aspects of etiquette. Uh, you know, I was I was holding doors open for for people long before you know a kid would do that. Um, I was always in the back seat. The sisters always up front. I mean, maybe these are true in a lot of families, uh, but there was a formality. So there was this moment at dinner. Dinner relatively formal. My father would come home in a suit. He'd change out of his suit, put on a sport coat and a different tie, and 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 sit at the table. It was relatively formal kind of uh, setting. Sisters around the table, my mother and me. And there was a moment where everyone was laughing because I was saying something. And I was probably I don't know how old are you when that happens? Five or six, maybe seven. I don't know. And my mother, I remember her saying, "Don't do that." She said to my my sisters, "Don't laugh. You're only encouraging him." And I remember saying, what's wrong with a little encouragement? Which just, I mean, it just ended the whole dinner. Everyone was just dying. 
I learned at a very early age that I can say just about anything to just about any adult. I can question authority. And I was taught how to. You know, they, they gave me this great education, which taught me how to speak up. And, and when I, they, they taught me, my, oh, there was another thing that went on all the time. This is Ashkenazic Jewish uh, thing, I think, uh, where you're constantly asked in the household, what are you thinking? What are you doing? What are you, why are you doing that? There was like this, this constant meta-level question about why are you doing what you're doing and what are you thinking that you would do that? Thing? And I thought everyone grew up with a, a bit of always explaining yourself. So I grew up always explaining myself, which meant that even though I'm an introvert deep down and I prefer to be on my own up to a point, I was constantly going out to explain myself. My writing is a is a is a, a version of this. I wrote 500 blog posts, and then my mother died, and I stopped writing. And I didn't realize that I stopped writing because my mother died. I had been explaining everything. I had been not maybe justifying, rationalizing, making trying to make sense of of what otherwise would appear to be a lot of just crazy decisions in life. So my parents had invested in me being a, an extrovert, a fake extrovert. I have the abilities. I, I, I like to say I, I can win away games. I'm good at, I'm good at going out. But I, I, I started to think I was that person and I wasn't. Mm. So when you say, you know, was I, I, I did make some very solid friends, but even to this day, I don't have a lot of friends. I see you very rarely. I see you as often as I see almost anyone. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's talk about a little bit more about how that plays out in kind of your teenage years or kind of in this like, you know, this this part of your life where you're home under your parents' roof. You know, what are you like? What are you interested in? What are you doing? You know, kind of what sure. is keeping you engaged in life and how? I am mainly interested. So, so I can tell you what I remember and I can tell you what people have told me. People who I knew not very well, but watched me walk past their house every day from the bus uh, to my house said that I was always carrying a lot of books. And they, were, they, they thought I must be terribly smart. And I, but I just had a lot of books because I was assigned to carry you know, my books home. I would go home and I would uh, eat uh, a box of Ho-Ho's and drink a quart of Hawaiian punch. It's amazing I'm alive. And I would watch Gilligan's Island. Gilligan's Island is uh, metaphorically a, a formula for how I view the world. Uh, and my mother, it was the same. I mean, they only had so many episodes, but I watched them and ate these ding-dongs and whatever. And, and, and that's what happened. Uh, my mother would- Sounds constantly, decent. It's not a bad way to be. I you mean, know, uh, that's funny. As I, as I enter, <laughs> I'm still early in my 60s, but my 70s could very well be a vision of that, reliving that. Your, your doctor um, might not like that version at 70, but I mean, when you're young- and you know, once, once you're in Hawaiian punch, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's bad at any age, but once you've won the longevity war, it doesn't matter. So my mother would say to me, why don't you go out and, you know, play with the boy? And then we did have some kids in the neighborhood and we'd play baseball in the backyard. And that was kind of fun. And I, and I liked them a lot. We learned how to play poker with the kids. They came over, you know, on Friday and Saturday nights, we played poker in the base in the basement, the loser would buy a pizza. And that was fun. I was not a very good poker player, bought a lot of pizza. So I had friends. But I also felt like there was uh, there was there's very little motivation to go out. You know, if they'd removed all the doorknobs from the inside of the house, it would have been fine. You know. And why was that? I don't know. 
because I was happy. I was happy where I was. Generally happy. Thought, yeah. Yeah, yeah, generally happy. No, it was not. It wasn't a sad story. I was generally happy. Then something happened, right? And you and I have talked about this. When I was 15, my sister had my youngest sister, older than me, had gone off to college. The Beatles had sat with uh, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in India in 68. This was 75. And Dory, my, my beloved youngest sister, uh, learned meditation, transcendental meditation. And I said, I want to do that. And I did that. I, my, and it was funny because I couldn't drive yet. So my father said, I'll drive. And then he broke his leg on the tennis court, slipped on some leaves, and he couldn't drive. And so my mother said, okay, I'll drive. This, and so this was like the craziest out of family experience ever. The three of us went to learn transcendental meditation and get our mantras. They had their own experience with meditation. I think, you know, a full experience. For me, it was really, and I only realize it in like now 46 years of, of hindsight. It was a, um, it was a really weird and wonderful thing to be told to sit with your eyes closed and to think about, you know, to repeat a, for me, meaningless Sanskrit mantra. And I did that. And I did it. I did it enough that when I was 17, I gave, uh, at the Columbus Academy, there was, and still is a tradition that the juniors give a speech. I gave a speech on meditation. I even enacted it. I sat on the front of the stage and showed them a half a minute of meditation, which is not much to look at. And, you know, we all think the life we lived was normal. And so I think it was normal. But as I look back on my life, at that time, my friends changed. It, it might have happened anyway. My grades got a lot better. Might have happened anyway. I don't know. I assigned a lot of things to transcendental meditation that may not be causal. Yeah, I, I do too. And um, you have one of the all-time great stories about seeing your um, mantra on a taxi cab, which I have never forgotten. I only saw it on a taxi cab earlier. I was about a, six months in, and, and Time Magazine ran a story. If you all the mantras, it, yeah. They, right? put, they put the three most you know, basic ones there, and mine was there. So I called, <laughs> I called my teacher. I called Alan Ross at the TM Center. He said, Alan Ross. I said, Alan, I, it's Artie Isaac. He said, yeah, what's going on? I said, I just read my mantra in Time Magazine. And he repeated it. He said, you just read your mantra in Time Magazine. And I heard all these people laughing behind him. All these people, I don't know, filled, I thought filled with derision, but filled with joy, you know. Uh -huh. they, right. He, right. Said, he said, what's going to happen? I said, I, I don't know. That's why I'm calling. <laughs> That's funny. You know, for people that don't know, the um, mantra is not something you're supposed to write down or have a vision of, you know, it's supposed to somehow kind of cloud your experience if, you know, you've seen it in writing as opposed to um, just letting it come. But, you know, it's it's an interesting thing because I also do tend to assign a lot of my success or my way of being or any number of things to TM. And, I think there's a lot of truth to it, really, for me. But who knows, really, what would have happened. Um, I am struck a little bit by this visual of you showing what isn't much to look at, but a half a minute of meditation at your junior speech at Columbus Academy in the 70s. I mean, my experience with being an open meditator, with you know, sharing my practice, has got a lot easier in recent years. But when I first started meditating, you know, right out of college, 
it was not so common to talk about. In fact, I hit it. I would often, I would often meditate in my car. You know, it wasn't something that I was very outward with. And I don't know what it was like in the seventies, but you know, I'm just kind of picturing you. And maybe this is, you know, just my current view of you, but I see you as a real individual, as somebody who really, you know, has been able or or, or kind of can stand out in a room, um, who um, is unique and and is owns that. I don't know if any of those things are how you see yourself, but I'm wondering, like, it, what was going through your mind at that time in life? At, you know, 17 years old, where a lot of kids are judgy and, you know, things might, you know, be um, tough to be fully expressed. Was that just kind of who you were? Was that hard? Like, it's not so much about the speech, but just, were you just kind of uniquely you even then without, you know, kind of any hangups about that? I, I, I presume I had hangups. I mean, I, you know, there were, there were uh, challenges, you know, in social life and, you know, that those things happen. I, I, so I've never really given this that much thought, but I, but I will now, maybe I'm drawing an intuitive string back to my mother asking me to explain myself. I think I got really good at explaining myself. And I think I got really good at explaining myself preemptively. And uh, it would, I, I recall choosing to sit in meditation in front of everyone, in mock meditation in front of everybody, because I thought it would be sort of flamboyant. I thought it would, it would, I thought it would, it would make, um, not flamboyant, visceral. It would show them something because talking about meditation and yeah. showing them, I mean, it just gives them something else. To but I also really genuinely thought I would get the question, what's that look like? And so I thought, you know, let's let's preempt this. I don't want to answer what does meditation look like. And I found right after that, I could meditate at school, and people knew what the hell I was doing. There was no, there was no. What, is he sleeping? Yeah. So I'm, I'm I'm kind of you know struck by you know you. I think what and this is really a lot that uh, a common theme that we hear in the podcast where there's something that happens in the family dynamic. This is why I like to start here. That then has you be a certain way, right? Oh, so yeah. explaining yourself, right? That's came from your parents. You then, you know, became somebody who felt the need to explain themselves. Then you became somebody who was good at explaining themselves. So now it's like a superpower and it's like opening up doors for you or it's getting you something and you continue to kind of live into that. Is that, you know, what I'm yeah. hearing? Well, so there's, there's this thing called Reichian character structures and it talks about how we hold our body the actual structure of our body, how we stand, how we sit. Uh, there are five or six different archetypes. What causes them to come about in our lives is something that happens either in utero or in the first six or seven years of life. Two things happened. One was um, when I was in the womb, there was at least somebody thinking about my not surviving. And, and when someone is not wanted in birth, according to Reiki and character structures, that person uh, becomes an escape artist. And, and in me, I am always disappearing on people. You and I had a funny moment in an elevator where you said, gee, it's really too bad that we don't spend more time together. And the elevator door opened from my floor. I got out, the door is closed. And I said, let's see how this works. And you know, and the door <laughs> shut. I am a master at leaving. 
And I know. So, it's kind of, um, I before I accepted you for being you entirely, it was really annoying to me. Well, thanks. Because I like, I think I told you, like, I mean it like in a, in a, a complimentary way. Like I wanted more of you and you were like, yeah, sorry, that's what you get. Well, and uh, it's not because I don't uh, love you. It's not that I don't love people. It's yeah. just it's just that the, this Reikian character structure uh, of the creative sense, that they call it, is someone who believes I am not safe here. Existentially, I am not safe here. I have to get out. That's one thing that happened to me. The other side of the Reikian character structure is the performer. And when you hear me now and when you engage with me, you don't hear the that escape artist, that person just keeps disappearing. What you, what you hear is the performer and the performer comes about in early, I mean, mid childhood, uh, early childhood is five, six years old, where performance becomes um, a skill. And I became, so there was this moment back at, back at uh, the house, all my sisters had gone off into the world. I was, uh, we moved from the dining room into the kitchen. It was easier. We could reach into the refrigerator. It was just, it was, it was just the three of us. We didn't have to have the formality. And, and they were done raising kids. I mean, they just had me. So, but I would always eat quickly because I was an adolescent. And I would say, you know, may I please be excused? That was the ritual. And my parents would always say no. And who says, what is this? And so I would stand up next to the table and make them laugh until they would excuse me. And I learned, I, I learned stand up right there at the table and they loved it. And they, you know, they gave me pointers and it was great. It was, it was, I didn't, I thought this was normal that you were, that someone could tell you, you couldn't leave the table. And so, so how does this inform me now? I am both someone who is trying to get out of the room, any room all the time, waiting for this to get over so that I can go to the next thing. Um, And I am always performing. I'm all by performing. I mean, I'm, I'm judging your reaction and I'm trying Mm -hmm. to, I'm trying to stay, I don't know, interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is maybe getting a little off the kind of, you know, linear path of your life, but I am curious just because that's where we're at right now. When I hear that, I'm wondering how much you're choosing to be this way, or if it's been kind of the, thing that you've adopted that works for you, right? Like, so, or was there a moment where it, it switched into a choice of a, a way to be that you chose? In other words, humor is something that you get something out of. You give it and you get it, right? You're making people laugh, which they like, and you like seeing them laugh and being happy, but it doesn't sound like maybe that's where it started. I think it might have. I, I have always, maybe as a kid among adults, I learned that adults are very earnest. And if you can make a group of adults laugh, I mean, that's, that's just nuts. It's great. And so I found, I mean, I didn't, I didn't think of it in these terms. All I found was great rewards, uh, appreciation, just frankly, laughter. And it seemed like, and I didn't realize it, but they were relieved. They were relieved of a moment of earnest composure. And so that that traveled with me all the way through my early career. It traveled with me through relationships. It traveled with me through college and, and uh, places where I think I, you know, got a, got a cheap laugh and then got the hell out of the room. 
And I probably I missed what was there. So I don't I don't know what the cost has been to doing this. Was there a switch? I would say in the past 10 years, uh, the work I do now has a lot of my developing myself as well. And as a result, I'm learning about myself and um, listening to more teachers. And um, and I'm realizing that there is more choice, but I don't know that I would make the choices differently. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels right. Um, I also think that, you know, not to become too self-important, I just wrote an essay on, on uh, this last month. I delivered it on Monday night. It's about whether or not mindfulness hinders comic timing. If I'm mindful and I'm aware of empathy and I'm aware of respect in the moment, do I lose my comic timing? And, and, and I would just say that I came away from writing that essay thinking, you know, my, my purpose is to reduce needless suffering in the world. And laughter is a, I don't know, the Buddhists would say that all, all emotions are pain, but I would say that uh, yeah, okay, but a cheap laugh is a is a moment's relief. So yeah, yeah, I bring I try to bring that as a as an antidote to the ridiculous earnestness of this country. Yeah, no, I I I, I was just curious, you know, and I am glad you clarified that. And I know how much work you've done, you know, over the last ten years or or longer, really in your lifetime. But I know as you've shifted into this part of your life, how much work you've done. And I agree with you. And I'm glad to hear you answer it the way you did. I, I think fun, you know, and I would put laughter in the fun bucket is really important and often lost. And, um, you know, I, I think that my experience with kind of the essay subject, um, what comes up for me is I stopped drinking alcohol a few years ago. Um, and I never drank a lot to begin with, but I kind of got to the point where I thought it was pointless and I wasn't getting anything out of it. And I had that same concern. Would I still be fun? Would I, would I be funny? You know, um, a lot of my social life and was revolving around drinking. Everybody I knew would go out and have a drink. I mean, even if it was a drink or two on a Saturday night, that was part of the atmosphere and the experience. And what I found actually is the more mindful I am, the more kind of myself that I actually am, the easier it is for me to be funny. And and I'm more present when I'm sober and I'm like with you and funny things are coming to my mind that I can actually access and share with uh, a more mindful way of being. So I, that's just, I don't know, my experience and, and for whatever it's worth, um, I think the answer is no, it does not hinder. <laughs> it's, it's funny as you say that. The funniest I've been lately, it was six weeks ago at a Buddhist monastery where, I mean, I had the meditators, you know, barking with laughter. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, we weren't drinking, that's for sure. We were just uh, sort of sitting yeah, that was the challenge for you, huh? You like the challenge. Uh, they, they, everybody <laughs> wants to laugh. People are waiting for permission. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's get back uh, on kind of your lifeline here. You go away to college. Talk about life um, as already in your college years and kind of into your young adulthood. 
I was deeply afraid. I, I don't like saying this. Generally, people who went to Yale don't say they went to Yale, but I went to Yale and I was in over my head immediately. The people around me were, um, were awesome. And it's a relatively small class, 1,275 people. And my, my classmates don't remember it this way, but I, I, I felt like I, I raced back to my room. I just, uh, any, any excuse. You know, I'm able to play an away game, but it's very tiring. It's very tiring for an introvert to play, play extrovert. And mm-hmm. so I, uh, I, I would race back. Are you and, still that way? Just curious. Do you oh, still? Yeah. St- yeah. Yeah. I'm, wait, wait, I, do, I, do I still race home? I do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I lead these peer groups and it's sort of funny. I'm the first one out the door and I'm yeah. the one, I'm the lifeguard. I'm like, I, 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 you know, I run out. Yeah. I'm the same way. I, I can do it and I actually enjoy doing it, but it, when I'm tired, yeah. when it's done. And I do it and I, and I love the work. I love the, I love the play of it. So when I think of, of college, first of all, I got out of college basically uh, because I'm a dude and because I, uh, because I was a cheerleader and from Ohio. And, um, and I say dude, because I, I, I happen to have found out that if admissions were gender blind, the whole class would be women. So they, you know, they, they finally went to me and they, they, they put me in the class. I was the fourth out of, we only had 41 in our graduating class and four of us got into Yale. And it was because it was the first year of a headmaster and he went out to New Haven and he sold, he sold uh, what he could. And the other, the other three were scholars and I was just like this community builder. So I got, I got to college and I, and I, I was a community builder. I, I got involved in theater, but there's this telling moment, this, this freshman English, I, I, I talked and wrote my way because my scores weren't high enough. I got into the freshman seminar for English because that was my major. And I just really wanted to be in the smaller class. And the teacher came in every day and said, what's this about? You know, what's the play about? She did the book. She'd point to the book on the table. What's it about? She would ask a certain person. She came in one day, Alice Muskinnon, great teacher, ended up being a lawyer. She was, uh, she, she led the seminar and she came in and she said, Mr. Isaac, what's the play about? And I looked at the table because I hadn't done the reading. And, and the, the play was Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett, a play about everything. And I have no idea what it's about. So I look at the cover, Waiting for Godot, and I say, who is Godot and why are we waiting for him? And I thought it was just a laugh line, right? This was like a cheap <laughs> laugh and I get laugh bounced out of the class. Everybody I touched think it's their, pretty funny, yeah. It's not only funny, everyone touched their chin. They looked up, it's sort of like at two o'clock and they all thought, oh my. And I thought, whoa, I hit a home run. That's unbelievable. And I leaned back. And I thought, we have all learned a valuable lesson here. And, and you know, Elisa, it makes her crazy when she says, you didn't do the reading? You went to school, you didn't do the reading? And she said, and you're, and you're smug or proud of it? I'm not proud of it. She says, that is a, that's a sign of privilege. She said, I assure you, the people that aren't white dudes were doing the reading. And uh, anyway, I'm just over the white dudes, frankly. My only point is, um, I've learned that preparing doesn't necessarily get me ahead. My first mm-hmm. boss, my first boss, strategically brilliant. He said to me at one point, I can't understand it. You're 24 years old. You drop into a meeting with people many years, much more experienced than you. And you don't know even what we're doing. And you run the meeting and you, you start asking people questions. What is it? What is it? You wing yeah. it better. He said, you wing it better than anyone I know. And I said, thank you. He said, it's not a compliment. He said, the spoils that inert of those who plan will always elude you. And that has happened. I've not been a prodigious accumulator of wealth through preparation because I don't plan. 
So to this day, I don't plan. Yeah, but but Artie, are you just not a planner? I mean, like that's yeah. just like yeah, right. So it is just who you are, and it's certainly gotten you far in life, being the way that you are. And I don't know. I mean, I guess there's probably some truth to that, but if you wanted more, you could plan. No, you, no, no. I tried. I've tried. I've worked with people who teach planning. I've, 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 I've a shelf filled with planning books. It isn't that I can't. Yeah, could I do it if if I were forced? I have the luxury, the privilege, of being improvisational in every aspect of my life. And the more I've been improvisational, meaning not owning companies, not having employees, the more that I've been allowed just to wander around, orbit the giant hairball, the better off I am. Yeah. And I I was wondering, because I'm actually similar, except that I developed the skill to plan and I plan for the things that I want to. um, And I don't plan for most things. But I have learned how to plan for the things that I feel it helps me achieve what I want. For example, this podcast, the first podcast episode I ever did, I refused to research, to rehearse, to come up with a script. And it wasn't that I, I meant to do it. I, I, I thought that I should do it, but there was so much resistance to doing it, I ended up not doing it. And I pressed record and I asked a question and then I listened and asked another question. And the next thing you know, I fell into the format that we use now, which still has zero script to it and zero planning. I literally will pull up the bio during the recording and look at it occasionally to see if there's something there that I want to make sure I pull out. And I think it's better that way. It's definitely better for me that way. And my question for you really is, do you think that um, this is one of those things I attribute to TM a little bit, that I feel like I'm able to be mindful, present, you know, connected in a way that uh, maybe I wouldn't be if I uh, wasn't a longtime meditator? You know, I, uh, yes, and uh, I, I do agree with, with the benefits of meditation in me on this topic. I also believe that my demographics, uh, my education, wealth, skin, you know, uh, gender, age, nobody ever questions my competence. Nobody ever asks, are you competent? That's fair. And so, so for me to show up and say, let's wing it. Uh, I have to recognize that not everyone gets that same opportunity. Yes, and and I know that privilege is an important subject to you, and we can talk about that as much as you want, but I also think that what you're saying is true, and there's plenty of white guys that plan. Yeah, you know what? And I, I guess what I found, what I found in my experience is that if I don't plan, I will do what I like. And doing what I like has certain outcomes. They may not be the world's greatest outcomes, but they're the. But I'm happy with them. Like I'm these days, I'm 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 producing little books of poetry and essays, and I I find that to be terribly rewarding. I think it's just I think it's just a delight, and and I find that I'm not planning to do it, but I but certain things happen in in a uh, a convenient pleasing order. I live my life in a in a in a I guess a, a spontaneous pleasing order. And and uh, Artie, I want to kind of 
continue with this conversation in a way that I think is a little bit more fitting to you, which is I'm not going to ask you to tell me about your jobs in order and lead up to the one that you have today or to where you are in life. What I'd like you to talk about is whatever it is that you think is important about your career prior to the work that you're doing now. So you mentioned your first boss, you know, between that first job and the one you're in, tell me what stands out for you. Well, for me, the, the, the seminal moments were in high school and, and before with a paper route and a dishwasher and a bartender and a paper, uh, I say paper route. I, I was, I had, uh, I was a bank teller. I was a mm. cab driver in, in high school. I drove a taxi for yellow cab. Those, those were, those were seminal moments. I, I saw work. I read Studs Terkel working, which came out around that time, a series of interviews with people of different jobs. I was really interested in what is work. Cause my dad had, he was a stockbroker, great guy. But just like this really conceptual thing he was doing, you couldn't really watch him do it. And so I was interested in work. The the seminal moments, going to business school was certainly something, uh, not something that was necessarily productive, but I met a lot of people. I, you know, moving to New York to work, I think I had a job in New York. What it was, I was in New York and I happened to have a job. But I also found that I could could question just about anything uh, on any topic. I could question just about anyone. And I and what I saw was, uh, you know, just just this learning that that winging it could yield rewards. But I also didn't have any. I mean, just like a seminal moment was in that job. I didn't like it very much. And I decided I'd seen a kid do this in high school. He was a great scholar. And he uh, he woke up at one o'clock or two o'clock every morning and worked for an hour and a half. And it gave him extra study session. And I thought, you know what? I want a life that isn't five days of work and two days off. So I, so five nights a week, I would also wake up at one o'clock and I was in New York and I'd go walking. I'd go walking around New York. It, it would be a little day in the dark with no meal. Uh, and so I felt like I had 12 days, 12 days to the week and only five of them were work days. This might sound a little psychotic, but it was really, again, maybe this is just, I, 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 le- I saw that work was not everything for me. I saw my peers rising much faster. Like I, I hung out with two guys um, from high school, good buddies from Columbus, happened to be in New York. We went out just about every night and, you know, had pizza and drank beer and ate steaks. And it was, it was really great fun. They had meteoric rises in their careers. They were in the right place. They were really smart. They were doing it. And I, and I saw that I wasn't. I think what that did for me is it, it sort of turned me off to becoming too engaged in my work. I, mm-hmm. I, sort, of, I sort of did work as a sideline. Mm-hmm. And, and I could do enough of it to, you know, to afford my life. Mm-hmm. Well, two things that I do want to ask you about, about your career. One, I still occasionally will have somebody mention to me that they took your class at Ohio State. You taught at Ohio State. Oh, yeah. And I want to hear you talk about that, especially sure. as it pertains to not planning. And then you were an entrepreneur. You owned your own marketing agency firm. I don't know what yeah. you would call it, advertising agency at the time. And I'm just curious like, about that experience based on what you just said. You know, sure. this idea that you didn't want to you know, kind of be too consumed in your work and you want life not to be five and two. And like, 
as an entrepreneur, that's tough to do. Well, the people I worked with, uh, my former employees, will tell you that it was that it was an ethical place, that we were a good place to work. We were, you know, nutritious and we we cared for one another. They will also tell you it wasn't going to grow because there was this. They they had the impression I was independently wealthy. At least I was acting that way. I was acting like we didn't need to make money. And so uh, I ran the company or, or didn't run the company, um, sort of like a small college. I hired really smart people who were really good at what they did, then never told adults what to do. I never told adults what to do, so I couldn't do that. The classroom is where I went. And they saw me, you know, in the evenings I'd go to the classroom, mainly at Columbus College of Art and Design, but also at Fisher College, Ohio State. Uh, also at Capitol, also at Otterbein, variety of different places, but mainly at CCAD and Ohio State. And I taught at CCAD, I taught how to uh, think about your work. And that was really fun because it gave me a way to think about my work and my life. So I, they, they were sort of like sermons. They were sort of like stand-up comedy. They were sort of like academic lectures. Uh, I turned into a huge class, 100 students. And, I, and it was like the, it was the biggest class on, on campus at CCAD, which is mainly studio, small, intense work. I can remember the first day uh, when I was lecturing, I thought, man, what an imposter, you know, the imposter syndrome. And so I decided I'm going to do what real professors do. I'm going to walk out among the students. So I walked down the stairs off the stage and into, into the seating area at Kanzani Auditorium. And they're all because they were all taking notes. I thought I must be a teacher. They weren't taking notes. They were drawing a picture of. They were all artists and they were simply drawing caricatures of you know, glasses and a big nose. And I just thought it was so humbling. It was so, it was such a delight. At Ohio State, I taught them how to work with creative people. And really what I was saying is here's how to work with me. Mm. In the end, a really funny thing happened. Years later, two people were in a conference room and they called me. One had graduated from CCAD and he'd learned how to get more budget for his photography. And the other guy was a, uh, a brand manager and he had learned how to work with creative people. And they realized they had both been taught by me because I taught them like these, these mm. incantations. I will just say this, teaching was for me a peak experience. Uh, if I look back on my life, peak experience, at least outside of the house, I ended up teaching seventh grade, actually third grade through eighth grade in Sunday school, which in the Jewish tradition is a much more intense I think, educational system than, than maybe in, in other traditions. I got paid. A lot was expected of me. And I taught Holocaust history. I mean, I learned, I, I learned a lot in the classrooms. I learned more as a teacher in the classrooms, we say, people say this, than I did as a student. I disappointed a lot of teachers along the way. Hmm. Interesting. Artie, um, I think, you know, it's actually uh, interesting for me because I also taught at Ohio State for a number of years. And I remember when I agreed to teach the class that I um, wouldn't prepare a syllabus and that I um, was just going to come in and talk. And I was supposed to be teaching real estate, but I also told them that I was probably going to teach life more than real estate. And I still to this day am pretty outspoken about like what we should be learning in school. And whenever I get a chance to talk to kids about what I think they should be learning versus what they're taught, I love to do that. And, and, and so I, I'm only bringing that up because I was a lousy student and I think I was a pretty good teacher. Those two things aren't always correlated. In fact, you know, they might not be correlated at all. Well, there's, but, there's, so I'm, 
I'm a good teacher as far as performer. And I'm a good teacher as far as like pastoral care, but I'm not a scholar. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the same thing kept me out of being, becoming a rabbi. For me, um, the planning that I did in the classroom was self-preservation. That was the one place where I really had to deliver a series of thoughts that I wanted to deliver. And I only had a set time. And so I would create PowerPoints that I would watch uh, that would keep me, keep me on Mm. track. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, I I am curious because I remember knowing you at this time that you chose to close your business. I don't know if you closed or sold or sold it for for very little. It was, it was closer to arson. And in fact, if it had been arson, my balance sheet would have been stronger. (laughs) Oh, that's great. So you exited your business and, and you made a career change, a life change, really. And, and that does, you know, lead to the work that you're doing today, in part, at least. And I'd like for you to just kind of share with the audience what that time in life was like, you know, sure. why and, and, and what led up to it and how you ended up choosing to do that. Sure. And this is a story that, that I, this is a story I've thought a lot about. I told you I was scared of my college classmates, uh, impressed and scared, not, uh, not in danger. But, uh, but I was a, also a bartender at reunions my, uh, the end of my junior year in college. And the people coming back, the five years were upset with each other. The 10 years were just getting divorced. The 15s were upset about their career. The 20s, divor- uh, d- depressed. The 25s were so happy. And I said to myself, I'll come back for the 25th reunion. And then I disappeared from my class for 25 years. And I came back for the 25th. And I, in fact, I, I did what I always do. I joined the reunion committee. And they said, why would you join the reunion? You've never been to one. And I said, well, what percent of the class has never been to one? They said, 53. I said, oh, well, why don't you talk to the 47% that keep coming? I'll talk to the 53 that don't. This may be too long a story, but I'll try to make it short. I went back to the reunion and people said, oh, I'm here because you wrote those letters. My letters had said, here's why I missed the 5th, and the 10th, and the 15th, but I'm not missing the 25th. We broke all records by 8%. At the very, people remembered a play I was in, Our Town by Thornton Wilder. You know, it's a play about everything. I guess all plays are about everything. But it's about life is short, don't mess around, words have meaning, be here now. And, um, and I was in that play, and I had, thought I'd done a really a bad job. My father had come out to New Haven to see the play with my mother, but I can remember my father coming up to me at the very, you know, after the curtain, after, after he could talk to me. And he put up his hands in front of me as if to say, stop. And he said, don't, don't act. And I thought, oh, I hear you, dude. You know, I didn't know my lines very well. I'd be frankly getting high. It, I just, I wasn't, I, well, anyway, at the reunion, people remembered it. And they said, no, no, that was, that was like the most pure presentation of that play, which is the most produced play in America. One was a theater critic for a major daily said, no, that was apt. That was it. I said, oh, and then at the very end, I'm leaving. And Heidi Smith, who lets me tell this story, comes up to me and she says, I owe you my thanks. I said, she said, I'm Heidi Smith. I'm from Texas. I owe you my thanks because you were the stage manager in our town, the omnipresent, omniscient guide for the play. She said, um, I owe you my thanks because when my three and a half year old son died, it's because of you I had no regrets. 
Hmm. Now I heard this and I hadn't really remembered what the play was about. And I, I said, I'm sorry for your loss. And she said, that's not why I'm telling you. You taught me through the play uh, when, when he's jumping in the pool and he says, mama, look at me. I looked at him. I didn't look through a viewfinder. I looked at him. And um, so I came home and I reproduced the play with Matt Slaybaugh in Available Light Theater. We had four shows at the Cassingham Auditorium, four sellouts, 400 people each. We made 20 grand for charity. It was, it was, it was like having my funeral because I, just before the curtain opens, before I come out front, I can hear everybody. How do you know Artie? How do you know Artie? It was really, it was cool. And I stepped out and I did that. And, and my classmates had told me, what are you doing? You're working in advertising, a little agency, but that's, you're capable of more than that. And they reminded me of ambition. They made me think, this is, you know, you need to be more ambitious. So I sold the agency really quickly and just like fled. And how, what did it feel like? It was um, mindless. I was not, I mean, I was, I was thinking about who I had to tell what when. So there's a lot of dodgem cars going on. Um, I owed, a, for me, a ton of money that, you know, that went from a line of credit at the office to a personal line of credit in a moment. Fair is fair. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I was, uh, there was a moment when our daughter, that summer, she was the only one working in the house because she had a job at Katzinger's. She's like 15 years old. She had a, a job at the Delicatessen. And the rest of us were at home. And I was still cleaning up the office, trying to get rid of like, postage meters and things like, things like that. And it was Friday night, Shabbat dinner, we're sitting down for the meal and she puts her paycheck. It's, you know, second Friday, she puts her paycheck on the table and says, well, I guess that's about it for the household economic engine. <laughs> and what I didn't realize is I think, I think I, I think I scared, I think I scared the hometown, the home folks. I think they thought that we might be in trouble. I was an improv, improvisational person. So it, I didn't, I didn't really know the danger I was in and things have worked out. Yeah. And I just want to talk about that for one minute. And this is probably going to be the subject of our conversation yet again um, when I come visit you in Yellow Springs, because <clears throat> it's been part of my journey over the last few years to untangle this kind of thing. It's part of the reason why I'm doing the podcast and, and new things, but what strikes me is that you got this kind of download, that this insight um, through that play, through that experience, and you immediately, despite the fact that there was debt and there was lack of clarity where the income was coming from and people that were you know, responsible, you were responsible for and relationships and whatever else. And there are a lot of things when you are in business for as long as you were and, and, you know, had the reputation you had and were good at what you did. People loved working with you. There's a lot there. And there's something uh, that strikes me about your um, ability to just know it wasn't for you anymore. And there was something else there, even if you didn't know exactly what it was, uh, that you would act. To me, it's like, because this is part of my struggle, there's, it feels like tremendous courage or conviction or yeah, yeah. strength or security, something. But that might just be you know, how I'm projecting it. What, what was it for you? For, for me, it was, I was learning my lines on a beach during spring break learning my lines for our town. 
uh, got home. Uh, the uh, general manager of the small agency said, uh, it looks like a recession starting. Our clients want to put things on hold for 20, for, uh, for, you know, nine months, three months. Is that okay? I said, yeah, yeah. I've been through a couple of recessions. I went home. I said to Elisa, it's a recession. She said, well, you know, got to put money in. That's, that's what happens. I said, yeah, but this is different. I have no ambition to own this agency. And she said, well, then it would be, I don't know, crazy to put $1 in. So I went in the next day, Tuesday, I said to the general manager and our controller, we're closing tomorrow. Because I just, this was 2008, you know, the writing was on the wall. I th- it, it, was, it was pretty clear it was going to be a, a powerful recession. I mean, mm. I'm no genius, but I can tell. And so, so Wednesday, we told the staff, we're going we're gonna to pay you for a couple of weeks. We're going to finish the work for clients. We're going to pay our bills. It's not one of those situations, but we're just shutting her down. I'm going to go teach. The staff said two things. One, don't, don't just close it down. It's making money, you know, modestly. And two, we love you. And I went to lunch. And I started getting calls at lunch from people saying, what are you doing? I said, I'm having lunch. They would say, but yeah, but uh, your people are putting their resumes out. And they're saying, Artie's done. He said something like, stick a fork in me. I want to go teach. And, and it, this was true. And um, I said, yeah, that's true. It was clumsy. It was clumsy. The board got so quickly to people that I hadn't told. It was, it was really, there were some, some awkward and, and, uh, and challenging moments with how news went around, but the news was the news. And so Thursday, my uh, Wednesday afternoon, my general manager says, is it okay with you if I sell it? And then on Thursday, Todd Swickard walks in from people to my site. We'd met once before, but didn't know each other. We shook hands and he bought it. And I remember him saying, what do you want? I said, I want out. I want a classroom of students. That's all I want. He did better than that. He helped me out with some of the some of the obligations, and he was generous with me. And by Friday, we told everybody they had a new employer. So for me, it was really fast. It was out of body experience. I was just listen. I'm an improv guy. I can I can you know I can shut down a business as fast as anyone. Well, I think there's something to be said about all of that. We're going to run out of time here, and I want to make sure you have a chance to talk about Vistage. Um, anything else that you're up to now? I mean, you know, I guess for the audience that might not know you, you've gone on to find many successful next acts, including, you know, becoming one of the top Vistage chairs. And I don't know the data. I just, again, like think highly of you, but I'm pretty sure you're one of the leaders in that space and you know, got into it pretty early and have been very successful in it, as well as an author and and so many other things. So, you know, again, in, in your way, what's important about kind of where you are now, what you're doing now, what what should people hear? Don't be modest and no, humble no. and say nothing's really that important. I, no, no, I'm no, really no. like you're up to a lot of good stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I, I wasn't about to be humble. I I, okay. I even resent the suggestion. So um <laughs> I, mean, I feel this, and I haven't learned how to talk about this, but I'm 61 years old, and I feel like I'm in like the next phase of this, this lifelong disappearing act. There's a social scientist, I think he's in England, I don't know, his name is Dunbar. He talks about Dunbar's number. And there, you, know, you can have five intimates, and you can have 15 really close friends, and 50 people you, you work, collaborate with, and 150 people you know, that, the, that, that, that are in your circle, and you can remember 1,500 names, but basically the brain is only so big. Now, I know this has been debunked. I don't think it's, I don't, even Dunbar says I'm not so sure, but I've taken that on as, yeah, I think that's right. I have this ambition to be known by fewer people, 
talking to you today, I mean, this is this is like my swan song. Talking to you today, I, I'm not doing a whole lot of outward stuff. Got off Facebook. I'm I'm not posting on on LinkedIn. You know, it's once in a while, if it's something, I don't know that I, I I am. I believe I want to focus on the 150. I want to focus on the 150 people around me. I've got about 100 Vistage members. I've got 50 loved ones and neighbors and guys. You just made it. It's unbelievable. Oof, you know, that was my next question. I know you're like 149. So um, no, you know, I'm not. I'm not trying to cast people out, but I. But this idea of being known doesn't please me. I was in the airport about 10 years ago and I, and I was in the, the, the line where you, you know, you're waiting for, for a TSA and you're snaking back and forth. And I, one guy was just far enough behind me that we would bump into each other, you know, him behind me and then we'd go apart and then we'd come together and go apart. Yeah. And he was somebody who used to work, work with me. And I know his name, but I'm not going to say for his privacy, but it was really funny. He says, nice to see you. It was nice to see you. And then we came together again. And he said, you know, can I ask you something odd? And we came together again as we, as we came again through the cordoned off area. He said, I thought you were dead. <laughs> and um, and we came together again. I said, no, no, still very much here. And then we came together again. I said, maybe, maybe it was my father. He died. Um, but my thought is that I, I don't want people to think I'm dead, but, I, but I, I really want to attend to a smaller community. So moving to Yellow Springs was part of that. Being a, pump, being a bumpkin. I am no longer striving for what already is. And I'm surrounded by people who are striving. And... Yesterday, in conversation with my friend Rob Emmerich, he he suggested that maybe that a smaller life appeals to me because I I have more delight in the nuances that happen in a routine. You know, the coffee's a little hotter, a little cooler, a little sweeter. The smaller things that happen out here bring me great pleasure. I don't have a bucket list. It's not anybody I want to meet. Um, there's no thing I want to see. I've seen a lot. You know, um, so I think I think the meaning of all this is that it, it's the beginning of yet another disappearing act. Yeah, you know, it's interesting as you started to describe that I was getting this feeling of the elevator closing on me again. So I'm happy to know that I slid in at 149. I will take that all day long. The um, thing upgrades, is, upgrades are possible with points. But go oh, ahead. I'm I believe me, I'm a I, I'm I love to gamify things. So <laughs> I I got to get in that top hundred, the uh, at least the the top half of the fifty. Anyway, um, I really relate to what you're saying, and I think that's why I like you as much as I do because I often kind of relate to how you are being or aspire to be um, in many ways, the way that you are in the world. And I have this feeling as being on the other side of that is like, ah, I want more arty, right? Because I like to be around people like you. It's interesting. It's energizing. It feels comfortable, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, on the other hand, I have the experience of wanting to also disappear myself. and. I love in what I do that I know a lot of people and a lot of people want to connect, have coffee, collaborate, you know, learn something, whatever it might be that we do together. Um, that's really nice and it's great. And it's oftentimes really enjoyable and sometimes produces something of benefit to somebody or to the to the world. And so I'll get that kind of thing too. Like, you know, we want to spend more time together or can I have coffee and whatever. And mostly I feel like I just want to disappear. 
to Montana or something where nobody knows me. And I feel a little bad about that sometimes. But hearing you describe it helps. And I guess, you know, for me, I think I'm just like not done doing it quite yet. There are still things I want to see and bucket lists that I want to check off. But I can see how you can land where you are and how that might be really nice. It's more than a definition of convenience to be happy where you are, to be happy with who you are. So I think, so about a year and a half ago, I switched from transcendental meditation, which I do recreationally now every once in a while. And I, I moved into a mindfulness practice with Juan Alvarez, local local guru. Yeah, Juan's been on the podcast. Awesome. Well, I've spent a lot of time with Juan over the past year. He was the like the 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 rudder and mast for a group of us uh, during the pandemic and, and uh, recently at a retreat. And I, it, it all sort of comes together, this idea to be known by more and more people and to be rewarded for that. And I understand people have to do that for, to make their living. I get it. That creates a lot of needless suffering because we can never be known enough if, if our quest is to be well-known. And so, you know, once taught, or he's tried to teach me, I'm, I'm trying to learn, that this idea of, gee, I'd like, I'd like to be with, with, with Brett more often. Uh, Brett would like to be with Artie more often. The illusion of the separation, the illusion that we are separate is what, what creates that uh, maybe craving or, 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 or whim or desire. You know what? In the end, we're all dead. And we've had uh, this moment together. And I find this to be precious and real. And come on at Yellow Springs. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that. And I feel that way too. And I did even when the elevator closed, as much as it was like, uh, what? You're, yeah. Ri- that's, but then I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's Artie. And that's perfect. Just the way it is. And that's why I love him. It has to be that way. You know, that's how it is. It, it, it can't be both. And um, anyway, Artie, I'm just going to leave it there. Thank you for for this time and for being together. It's always a pleasure. And I respect and admire you and enjoy you and love you and love who you are in the world. And I will come out to Yellow Springs. I'm taking my 10-week sabbatical, which I shared with you. I haven't really talked about it much on the podcast yet. But yeah, I plan to spend more time with friends and you know, take some time to do nothing and uh, dabble in what it feels like to disappear a little bit. So I'm um, looking forward to that and to seeing you. And thanks again for taking the time to share your story with our audience. Well, thank you for your uh, kind words and uh, generous assessment and, uh, and for being my friend. I'm glad we know each other. I, I, I think the world of you, let's, let's keep going. Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman, on Twitter at bkaufman125, and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching Fast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a d- any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.